Welcome to this episode of Resisting the Dragon's Feast. I am Pastor Michael Zarling, the author of the book. I'm here with uh, Pastor Peter Hagen, the, the editor of the book. And I thought, Peter, before we get into Chapter 5 on resistance, we could talk about uh, the theme of godly government that we had in our Wells churches on Sunday and the sermon you preached and I preached and the other sermons that were uh, on your Raised with Jesus podcast. Uh, so what do you think about your sermon you read and listened to my sermon compared to maybe other sermons that were preached in Wells pulpits uh, this last Sunday. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I read, I read yours and, um, and when I wrote mine and when I was at least thinking about the major themes in mine, um, the thing that just kept coming out was especially looking at like the, the worship, worship materials um, that our synod had kind of compiled was that it talked a lot about obedience and obey the government. And that is still a biblical concept, but Romans 13 doesn't talk that way. Romans 13 talks about submission. And so at least for, for my part, um, you and I had talked a little bit before, uh, before Sunday, and you said that you were basically preaching on Daniel and, and talking about the context of Daniel, which I thought was fantastic because it wraps in a, a good story that is um, out of out of our normal experience. And so people can kind of catch on to the idea before they see the point of comparison. And so I started in Daniel and then I talked about um, obedience and submission to the government and what is what does Christian submission look like uh, throughout the ages from Daniel to Jesus and the Pharisees and the Herodians um, to the early 20th century. Uh, well, I mentioned the uh, <laughs> the First Amendment and the five freedoms of the First Amendment. Almost forgot all five of them there, um, which was my only contribution to your, <laughs> to your study guide. Um, so it's like, well, I have to include that. And then we get into a little bit of the the Bennett Law, and uh, and concluded with the um, the Lyndon Lyndon Johnson Rule. I forget what the exact term for that is, um, and just basically asking the question. You know, the question when we get to obedience and submission isn't so much on what do we do and what do we not do, but it's a question of um, how do we as Christians confess Christ? Because that was, <laughs> yeah, you could say hi. That was kind of the, the, other, the other idea is um, this past week we had our pastor's conference and we talked about how do we confess Christ in in especially you know state of ohio when we are debating uh whether to have a constitutional amendment about abortion um and if we that this is part of our christian confession and that our christian confession has to match up with um with our community in some degree and so the, the big thing that i was really focusing on is this idea that that the christian has to confess um and that the christian need for confession um, is above any other law. And, and, and that's kind of, I think, the, the important point. Because at Pastor's Conference, um, the idea that I heard probably from the majority of guys was we just preach Jesus. And we just talk about the death and resurrection of Jesus. We don't have to talk about um, modern social issues. We just preach Jesus. Well, yes, you do. But if you aren't addressing things that relate to everyday life, then you are eviscerating your confession. Your confession is worthless. 
And, and it's not actually being faithful to say, you know, Jesus, 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 every single Sunday and not talk about anything related to everyday life. Yeah, and exactly. Kind of, yeah. Yeah. And <laughs> with that, exactly. You have to, you said it in your sermon is you have to bring Jesus and make him real to people in your life. And I just came from a little conference for the teachers uh, at Shoreland Lutheran High School they had a pastor come in, Wells pastor, talk about LGBTQI plus issues that he had come in and talked to the faculty uh, last month. And then they did a presentation for the students and so forth. So he was kind of wrapping some things up with the faculty and they had invited the, the Wells pastors to come in. So I was there and they had discussion at the, at the end. He had written about 12 different discussion questions for us to just kind of look over. And then, you know, my, my group, we, we, which were myself and two other uh, young Shoreland teachers, we were talking about like, how do you deal with this? in the, you know, making Jesus real to these students who are maybe struggling with these kinds of things. And we talked about, you know, the difficulty of making it real. And, you know, what do you do in a situation, say, uh, you have two girls that are saying they're lesbians, they're dating, they're holding hands in the hallway. Uh, they're very outspoken on social media uh, about their relationship do you just automatically kick them out of school? And I think a lot of schools might do that. But then all you're doing then is giving them over to the pagan world, to the, to the culture where it is acceptable. And But yet if you keep them in the school, uh, then the outside world, pastors, other teachers, uh, the school board, parents, students are going to think, well, the high school is not doing anything. So that's a really difficult situation. And, you know, I, and I brought up in our group how it was about 15 years ago, we had a situation, a sexual situation where it was a young man uh, in, from our church and a young lady from another Wells church. You know, they had sexual relations and she was now pregnant. In the past, both at Shoreland and my high school, Kettle Moraine Lutheran High School in Jackson, something like that happened, you're automatically expelled. And and I appreciated that the principal at the time at Shoreland, he kept them there. And I was there, the other pastor was there of the and we talked to the young man and woman. And uh, the principal really wanted them there to stay until she started showing. Then they both had to you know, take classes at home until the baby was born. And the reasoning the principal gave for this was if they would have gone to a public high school, it just would have been normal. But leaving them at Charlotte, we could uh, keep them in law and gospel, repentance and forgiveness. And I'm sure he took a lot of flack from pastors and parents and so forth. And yet, you know, I testify that just the way the, the Lord worked, I ended up being the pastor for both that mom and dad. They didn't stay together, but they had the child. And then I confirmed the child a couple of years ago. But if they would have been expelled, they may have lost that whole family and then the extended family from the church body. So it's, I just tell that story here because it's 
preaching Jesus in very real situations. How do you live with Jesus? And so, yeah, I think the pastors that say, I just preach Jesus. Well, Jesus didn't just preach Jesus, right? Jesus preached Jesus, and then he said, well, this is what it means to follow me. You know, when he invited uh, Peter and his and, and his brother and James and John and Matthew, follow me, that's a change in lifestyle. And it's a change in lifestyle when it's dealing with Sixth Commandment, commandment issues. It's also a change in lifestyle when you're talking about Fourth Commandment issues when it's dealing with governing authorities. Yeah, definitely. And and I think that the main thing for me, um, as I wrote this this morning in a different project I'm working on, um, is that we don't call it a, I prefer not to call it a Bible story, because a story is a fictional tale that maybe has some, that has a meaning to it. Uh, so like a fable is a story, or maybe, it, you know, like, um, like Hans Christian Andersen and his, uh, his, his fairy tales he packs in this in this moralistic meaning like what's the moral of the story what's the moral of the story um bible history isn't isn't a collection of stories it's a collection of accounts it's a collection of historical accounts with actual people and and if we if all we did was preach jesus while jesus lived died rose from that here's what jesus said then we're treating it like a story like this is something where you can you can get a moral meaning from this maybe you can derive some guidance from this for your life but it's not authoritative um but if it's a biblical account and this gospel is the living and enduring word of god then we need to apply it um because and it's like well test god in this you know see if his gospel is uh is sufficient enough and strong enough to actually address the the real concerns of today or um you can just Say, you know, we, we tell stories about Jesus and and leave him completely irrelevant. Um, and that's, you know, like <laughs> the idea of just having a policy or going on precedent um, also ends up taking the guts out of the gospel. Um, because then it's like you just you just say, what is our policy? What did we do before? So what do we have to do now? Um, you know, policy and precedent make for bad practice. Um, and I think that the same thing, yeah, there's more to that. And the same thing goes when we talk about um, preaching Romans 13 and the government, that if, if we are to um, apply this properly, we don't just say, here's the list of what we should do and what we should not do. But it's, here's the list that God says in his word. And now let's test it and push it a little bit to see what scripture has to say for us today. That it's not just a collection of morals and tales and fables, but it's the living and enduring word of God. And Jesus wants to guide his church today, too. <laughs> and so we need to let him do that. Yeah. And in, I go again, going with the LGBTQI thing is I think we are very much this mindset, again, as pastors, teachers, parents, people. We look at the Bible verses. Let's apply some Bible verses to this. And now we're done. You know, we like steps and nice and easy, you know, like you said, a plan, a procedure. But this sin and grace is messy. It takes time. And and I write this in the book that when you just follow and say Romans 13, fourth commandment and so forth, just submit, just obey, that's an eighth grade answer. And you and I have talked over Facebook Messenger that you and I have changed the answers to our uh, catechism curriculum 
because that's the answer that's in there of you just have to obey unless it's Acts 5, 29. They tell you to do something and sin against God. And, you know, I changed my, I changed that answer. It's more wordy because it's not easy. And that's the whole point here. And uh, I had someone that listened to my sermon, not one of our members, another pastor. And he said, oh, yeah, basically it was a summary of your book. Well, okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But I had one of our, one of our men, a new member, he talked to me yesterday and he said, you know, pastor, that's the first time I've heard a Wells pastor preach a sermon like that. And he said, is that a good thing? He goes, yeah, that was a good thing. Because <laughs> yeah. again, you and I talked about this, that uh, we in the Wells are very enamored with Professor Deutschlander's book, you know, about the Lutheran Middle Road. And rightly, we should be. But I told you, I said, I think we forget about that when we come to this topic of the fourth commandment when it comes to Romans 13 or Titus 3 of obey the government, submit to the governing authorities. And we say, it's just this. And we, and we forget about the other things, you know, Romans 13, but we forget about, well, there's also Revelation 13. So we have to be in the middle of those. We say, uh, honor those in the government, but we forget about the honoring the parental authority. We say, uh, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. But we forget what Luther and the Magdeburg Confessions say about, we don't give to Caesar what does not belong to Caesar. And we forget that middle road. Uh-huh. And and the first time that I had heard anyone say we don't give to Caesar what is not Caesar's was um guy by the name of Verlin Hahn. He he kind of oversees the 403B plan for um for our called workers. Okay. And um and he was talking at like a district convention and it, he was like on a very short list of people that I thought um you know both pastor or lay people just you know a very short list of people that I thought had a fantastic grasp of how this works. Because here's the other thing is, it's really a question of how well can you really understand something if you never have to apply it practically? Like, um, and there, there are brilliant men um, who are serving as professors and some of them for a very long time. And obviously, you know, far more wise than I in many of these things, but that brings with it the special challenge of if you're not serving in a parish ministry or serving in a congregation for an extended period of time, um, they would probably admit and recognize this too, that there's some distance between knowing what is correct and then having to apply that in practice. Um, and so when we get to, I think where that kind of grows out from there is when we get to questions of application, you know, um, where we, we love, um, this will be a little bit of a rabbit hole, but I'll make it quick. Uh, there's this idea of the, the trivium. The trivium, you know, see the word try at the beginning, three. Um, you've got a grammar stage, a logic stage, and a rhetoric stage. Grammar stage is like grammar school, where you learn the basics. You learn ABC, you learn mathematics, you learn how to write, you learn the facts. That's the idea. Um, logic stage is the one after that where you put facts together so that you can um, not just have the building blocks, but then you see how, how the structure is built, how beautiful structures are built. Uh, so you have the building blocks of knowledge and then you put them together into a logical and coherent way. 
And then the, the last stage of learning is rhetoric stage, where um, you bring together different doctrines and you say, well, how do, we, how do we parse out the difference? What is the proper application here? And in learning, there, there is a progression of in, in the trivium uh, from grammar stage, very simple, what is it? Um, to logic, why is it? Um, to rhetoric, how is it and what now? Um, and I would say, and correct me if I'm wrong, but most of the synodical Bible studies that we get, whether it's catechism or something else, is primarily what does this say? What does this mean? Instead of why does this matter? Or even we barely ever get to what should we do now? And the result is if we're following your, your catechism course that we get from NPH, which you and I both use, and it's very well written for what it is, um, at the same time, when we get to a question of application, it's always an application that lets us off the hook. <laughs> like it's an application that I, I will obey the government and I can unplug my brain until the government commands me to do something that is not godly. Um, and when, when we get to that day, then I'll know that I have to stand up. And instead of, instead of having our brains plugged in the whole time to say, what is, what is a proper biblical application now that I can do as part of my confession, that is part and parcel of congregational life or the decisions that I make on a daily basis? Yeah, and what you were talking about is, you know, like say professors may not have thought of this uh, because they've been in an institution and not you know, the practical application as a parish pastor. And again, a pastor to ask me if I thought that, you know, other pastors or professors were wimps because they didn't talk about this in this way. And I said, no, I don't think they're wimps. It's like we just said, they just haven't thought about it practically. You and I have been blessed at least the last three years. I didn't think this way either until I got, until COVID hit. And then I got tasked with writing a paper that turned into a book and now it's podcasts <laughs> and so forth. So I think about this stuff all the time. But, you know, others, same thing with, say, LGBTQI and so forth. The pastor that was there, he's thinking about this all the time and uh, not the rest of us who they were wimpy. We just don't know. And that's why we go mm -hmm. to those things. And I, and I liked what he said, too, when... He's a parish pastor, and he spends, he said he spends more time on the Sixth Commandment, and then he just kind of gives homework on the Seventh and Eighth Commandments. He goes, when they have a a, a problem with uh, sinning by stealing or their, their gossiping and so forth, then we'll spend more time on that. But, you know, the sexual issues, those are the things right now. And I like that. Uh, and the two young teachers I was with, they asked me if I spent a lot of time on that. And I said, yeah, I do. And I probably will spend more time now after listening to the pastor's presentation. In the same way, I spend a lot of time now on the fourth commandment instead of going over and say, well, you have to listen to your parents. You have to listen to your governing authorities. Move on. I think it'd be good for us as pastors and parents to present different situations, different scenarios. How do they, how do you deal with this? And like I said in my sermon is it's okay if we come, if we have the same principles as Christians and we come down on different ways of applying it in a situation. The example I used was, <clears throat> well, I used some really geeky ones, which I knew they wouldn't, they wouldn't get, but to make it, you know, to maybe laugh a little bit and they were Lutheran. So they, 
Well, they laughed with their, you know, by smiling. They didn't laugh out loud. But then, you know, a real life example might be, you know, say that your parent now is a widow or widower, and now he or she has become an alcoholic. Do you give money to them because, you know, they're destitute? And then the same situation, but now it's a child who has become addicted to drugs. Do you keep giving him or her money? One parent, or another example might be, what if you have a child or a brother or sister who has now said that they're gay? Do you ostracize them? You cut them off from money, cut them off from uh, your your family because you're trying to show this is sin and you're trying to call them to repentance? Or do you show them love? Do you, you know, in a way, and that's, but that's also love. Mm-hmm. Or do you show them love by bringing them into the family and, uh, and then giving them money and so forth? But then that might be seen as you're accepting the sin. And the other way, if you're cutting them off, might, might be seen as, well, now you're not, you, you're showing love, but it's really cold. Different people come down in different situations. We all understand the applica- We all understand the principles of calling sin sin and calling to repentance, but how we do it and when we do it is different. Mm-hmm. And, and that was kind of that that same idea um, where that first stage of learning is is learning the principles and having a having a full discussion of those principles. That there are times where resistance is is required in order to support your Christian confession. And then once we have those principles and those those basic building blocks, um, two people with two different scenarios might construct their, their answer or their response or their application of those truths in a different way, where one family is like, we're going to we're going to welcome you, um, you know, and, and do our best to to welcome you without, you know, but it's going to be apparent that we are not condoning what you are doing. And the other might say, we are going to just totally cut you off. Um, each of those could be defensible, but it depends on how do you, what's the understanding behind it? Um, how do you construct that? And I don't know about you, but um, at least for me, like my sermon from this past Sunday, I kid you not, it, I've received twice as many comments as any other sermon in the last like 12 years. <laughs> um, and, and I don't think that's so much a comment on the, the beauty of the sermon, because I know I've preached better sermons than that. Um, but I think it is a comment where people are like, oh, that, that caught me, uh, caught my ear as something that I can take home and put in my pocket. But it isn't just a, you know, it's applicable, but it's still Christological. It's still Christ-centered. Yeah. And just, to say, you know, how do you figure that out? And I think that and that's true is, I, I think, again, people are hungering for these kind of things that uh, I don't remember being in the lectionary so much and talking about this. Uh, so I want to encourage you know, those who are listening to this podcast to listen to your sermon on the Raised with Jesus, listen to my sermon, and then also Pastor Seth Bodie's sermon. I'm going to give away the ending of his sermon because I complimented him on it. And I, because I think it fits too, is again, different people will come down in different ways of applying this. So he ends the sermon talking about how uh, we can, uh, we might do different things. And we were blessed in America that we, he didn't use this word, but you know, in what we were talking about in previous chapters of the book and previous podcasts about interposition, using a 
lower magistrate for a higher magistrate. And so he talked about like going to the courts and he talked about a person who had had surgery and the surgeon messed up and this uh, person got really sick from it. And, you know, he, he went, had to go back in for a second surgery, you know, say like there was a medical device that was left inside of him and, but he didn't sue the doctor or the hospital after the second surgery. Then he got a bill from the hospital. Then he sued the hospital. <laughs> and I thought, and I, I laughed out loud at the same time that his people did, because I thought that was a great illustration saying, Hey, in Christian love, I would say, oh, you messed up. But when I got, when I got billed the second time, because you messed up, now you're going to pay for it because I, I'm going to turn my cheek once maybe, but a second time, maybe not so much. Mm -hmm. uh, let's get into uh, the fifth chapter on resistance. <laughs> and I was thinking about, you know, that each of these chapters was special. It, the first five, when I give presentations on it, it's on the, mainly on the first five and I go over the last ones pretty quickly, but the first chapter was important because you got to set the stage on Romans 13 of submitting to the governing authorities. The second chapter on Revelation 13 was important because you have to see the other side of when, you know, Psalm Psalm 2, 2, the kings of the earth conspire against the anointed one and by application, us, uh, the anointed ones. And Revelation 13 is just Jesus with apocalyptic imagery uh, using a picture language of Psalm 2, 2, where the governments of the earth uh, appear as a beast out of the sea to wage war against God's saints. Uh, chapter 3, that was personal because someone called me not Lutheran for resisting, and then I found Luther's warning to my dear German people. So, oh, well. Luther was, uh, Luther was pretty Lutheran, I'm guessing, and he resisted. <laughs> Not very Lutheran there. Yeah, and uh, the fourth chapter on the Magdeburg Confession, and I don't know, Peter, if you've heard comments on the last two episodes of this podcast, but I have a lot of people did not know about the Magdeburg Confession. Yeah, I've uh, I've seen some of that in the online interactions. Um, I think most of the information you know for for this podcast is directed your way, um, and so I think you know including some of that online kind of brings out a whole lot of whole lot of people who can who can talk and say, "Hey, this is this is brand new history to me. Thanks for talking about this." Yeah, with that, there was a comment on on Facebook about a asked me if. I had a quia subscription to the Magdeburg <laughs> Confession. You're better with your Latin. So what does that mean? A quia subscription? Yeah, the, it's a, the, the two options are either a quia subscription or a quatanus subscription. Um, and so the idea there, quia means because and quatanus means as far as. Um, so is it a quia subscription that you um, confess that you personally subscribe to the Augsburg Confession be, or the Magdeburg Confession because it is in line with the Word of God, or do you just go and um, subscribe and confess the Magdeburg Confession, but only the parts that agree with the Word of God? 
Um, and so, you know, Lutherans categorically reject the idea of a cotanus subscription to anything because that, that empties the confession of any confessional value. Um, and I think I saw your response that it is a quia subscription, which is to say that we subscribe to the Magdeburg Confession because it is in line with the Word of God in its entirety. Right. And then the fifth chapter is probably my favorite chapter just because it's there's really three parts to it. In one is we're going to look at the biblical examples of resistance. Then there are uh, the kind of historical examples of resistance and then uh, in, in secular history and then more it's the application of that resistance. So I begin the chapter just so everyone doesn't believe that I only know Star Wars. I just throw a Star Trek reference in here. Uh, so different. Yes. Uh, Is that 72. insulting to Star War people to Star people? Yeah. It is. Okay. It, it is insulting because because I, I get into this with some other pastors who like Star Trek better than Star Wars. I said, well, but in Star Star Trek, it's just talking. If if I want if I had trouble falling asleep, and I would just come out to the sofa in the living room and I put on Star Trek: The Next Generation. Boom! I'm asleep because it's just talking. There's no. <laughs> Uh, in Star Wars, there's more action, at least in the first three movies, and then, but, but then when you get into episodes one, two, and three, when you have all the Senate drama and so forth, that can get pretty boring too. So episodes yeah. one, two, and three are episodes four, five, and six. Yeah, yeah, four, five, and six. Yeah. Okay. Is that after or before Picard becomes Darth Vader? Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're gonna look at Picard becoming. <laughs> Uh, Locutus the Borg. Oh, that was it. Okay, okay, yeah. I gotcha. Not Darth Vader. Yeah. Uh, so on page 72, in Star Trek The Next Generation, the crew of the USS Enterprise repeatedly faced the Borg. The Borg are cyborgs intent on assimilating the biological creatures of the universe into their collective. The standard message used by the Borg when they encounter an alien race they intend to assimilate is resistance is futile. In one episode, the Borg capture Starfleet Captain John Luke Picard and assimilate him, giving him the name Locutus of Borg. He responds to the crew of the Enterprise, I am Locutus of Borg. Resistance is futile. Your life as it has been is over. From this time forward, you will, you will service us. And then I ask the question, but is resistance futile? So then I ask you, Peter, what is resistance? <laughs> All right. I, um, I do have to say, I, I appreciate learning all this about um, science fiction and Star Wars and Dead Joe. And uh, that was one of the things I really liked about the book, besides the Magdeburg Confession. Um, re <laughs> resistance is, um, is, I think, at least in my thinking, it lines up very well with the idea of um, something defensive. Rebellion is you're going on the offensive. You are you are um, starting starting something, you are antagonizing the enemy on purpose, um, you are the aggressor. Resistance is somebody is coming toward you and they are pushing back against, um, against your boundaries. And resistance is finding a way to say no. Uh, finding a way to say um, no when others are saying yes. It's standing up when others are sitting down. Finding a way to, um, to in your innocence, 
to vocalize or verbalize or put into action the idea that you do not um, go along with this. Great. And one of the examples uh, I, I came up with while I was driving on Sunday, because what we do on Sunday is if you're the preacher, uh, you, you know, I was preaching. So as soon as I was done preaching and then with the Nicene Creed, I go in the sacristy, take my gown off, get in my car, go to the Caledonia campus, do the whole service. As soon as I'm done greeting the people there, come back, get my gown on just in time to sing the hymn of the day, get in the pulpit and preach. So it's pretty, pretty rush, rush, rush. <laughs> I was going to say, I was wondering how you do, how you did that there. That's how I do that it. That is busy. Yeah. And cool. You know, that's why I have to, that's why I have to have short sermons and then talk fast too. And, <laughs> uh, but God had me listening. Well, it just, I think it happened with God's will that the book I was listening to while I was driving is uh, Live Not By Lies. And I think that's a really good book that all of us should be reading, especially our, our pastors. Uh, it's a book about uh, where the author is interviewing people who had grown up in and escaped communism in Russia and so forth. And now they're in America and they say, you do not, you Americans do not see that this country is going the same way that Russia did with communism because it's soft totalitarianism, it's called. But I just think it's important for us to read that book, or I'm listening to it, because to, to understand how these Christians resisted. And uh, like one example I remember from, from my listening on Sunday morning was a dad whose son had come back to him and said, Dad, you know, he was like, you know, 12, 13 years old. Hey, I learned this in school about our nation. And the dad said, Okay, so what they're teaching you in school is wrong. They're not teaching you about uh, the mass execution of prisoners, the gulags, and so forth. They're only teaching you good stuff. But he said, you cannot go back to school and tell your teachers or any of your classmates what I taught you. And But you have to know the truth. You have to know the real history. And then the author brings up one of the main problems was that other parents, other grandparents were not telling the truth to their kids and grandkids. So now two generations removed from all of that, uh, of the imposing the hard totalitarianism on Russia, they didn't realize that that's what had happened. They had forgotten their history. That ties in with 1984, uh, George Orwell of, uh, you know, we were always at war with East Asia and so forth. You know, just telling lies until you believe the lies and what the author is bringing out in Live Not By Lies is he's saying you can't live by the lies. You have to push back in some way. And, you know, an application, like when I talk to my students who are in college now and they say, well, Pastor, how do I do this? How do I write this paper for a professor who is going to fail me because of my Christian worldview on these things? You know, do I tell that student, well, just keep your head down, write what they want you to write and get your grade and get out? Or do I tell them, and this is what I do tell them is, you write what you need to write because if you're lying to yourself now, 
and you're compromising your faith to get a grade, you're going to compromise your faith later on. And that's yeah. that's a big truth in live not by lies. And the whole point is we have to live the truth. And that truth might is going to be resisting. It's saying no. It's saying what you're telling me as a government is a lie. What uh, is being imposed on our children in in the school, which is a governing, you know, a public school, that's a government institution. What they're teaching us about our, our kids about sexuality, that's a lie. And we need to stand up and not just accept it. Yeah. And, and the whole idea, um, I've read that, that book as well. Um, and he talks a lot about Alexander Solzhenitsyn, um, who wrote the Gulag Archipelago. It's like three books that are very, very dense, um, you know, very Russian through and through. And, but the whole thing is talking about how do we as, as Christians, um, confess the faith so that we don't mentally turn off our confession before we even say it. That idea of soft totalitarianism is that we don't even get to the point of suffering for our faith because we censor what we say and what we believe before we even get to, before we even get there. Um, I was talking with my wife about this, um, about, um, talking about her home country of, of Canada. And, uh, and she kind of laughs and says, yeah, it's, it's a socialist country. Um, and, and we talked a little bit about, you know, how, how would you preach Romans chapter 13 um, in that country or, or similar? And the, the question isn't whether the government allows you to say those things without getting in trouble, um, because you might get in trouble. The question is, do we not say things because we already have done a calculation, we have counted the cost and have figured that the cost is going to be too much for us to bear? And that is that is a terrifying place to be, because then we will still be Christians in name and in the chance of standing before Christ the last day and him saying, I never knew you. Um, Lord, Lord, you were in our streets. I never knew you. you know, it, uh, it does take that that point of um, Christian resistance that that recognizes there's first of all, there's no such thing as a godly government because it doesn't have the exercise of the gospel. Um, but that there is a government that God has instituted, and as a Christian who understands the relationship of um, the beast out of the sea and beast out of the earth, um, then we need to be aware of a full and fair proclamation or confession of the Christian faith will be resistance, bottom line. Um, and we can't just pick and pick and choose, well, I'm going to resist this because I don't like that party and that policy across the board. It, a full Christian confession will be resistance. It's going to be innocent. We're not going to be, you know, aggressors and making demonstrations and, and burning down cities. But if we want to have a Christian confession for us and for our children, then it has to be resistance. Yeah. And I like what you said there before about it's it's not going on the offensive it's a defensive position you know it, resistance and rebellion revolt is always going to be offensive and resistance is is passive and that, i think it's it's like you said before it's when they want you to say yes and you say no when they tell you to stand up and you say i'm going to sit down uh when they tell you that you need to use these pronouns and then you say, I'm not going to use those pronouns. It, those kinds of things. Yeah, you're going to face discipline. 
for it and you're going to be persecuted for it. And then you say, I've counted the cost. I'm okay with that. That's resistance. Uh, you know, and you had put in here on the bottom of page 73 with the bold print, uh, sometimes resistance is direct defiance to an immoral edict or ungodly order or a tyrannical ruler. At other times, resistance involves indirect defiance. And sometimes resistance is just saying no when an authority figure oversteps the confines of their God-given authority. And there, I think a lot of times pastors will say, as long as the government does not tell me to sin, then I, I have to go along with it. And I take issue with that. I think anytime a governing authority tells you uh, something you know is a lie, you can't go along with it because then mm -hmm. you are taking part in a lie. And the example I used was uh, when I gave this presentation a few weeks ago at the St. Croix Pastors Conference. It was uh, right around September 11th, and I told the pastors there, I said, I don't know if you heard what President Biden said. But he said that he remembers when he was there at Ground Zero the day after 9-11, and he gave a speech. Well, the pastors all knew that, and that he was a lie. He was lying. President Biden was in Washington, D.C. There's videotape of him giving a speech to Congress that day. So now what do we do? Do we, as Christian citizens, do we go along with the lie? because we have to submit and obey a governing authority? Or do we say, do we call, do we resist and call out that lie? And the example I thought of the other day was uh, the emperor's new clothes, right? So you know, a new question I would ask pastor, pastors is, was that little boy who called out during the parade route and said, the emperor's naked, was he wrong was he sinning because he wasn't submitting to the emperor who said hey look at my fancy new clothes or did he rightly say this is a lie and call out that lie and and so that's i i i strongly believe that he was right that we need to call out every lie mm -hmm. and and i just looking at this book um if you've got the book there page 73 we're talking about direct indirect and just saying no um that it correlates perfectly to pages 66 and 67 where the magdeburg confession talked about um the different levels of of injustice and we just flip the order the just say no is uh the first and second level on page 66 um that governing authorities make mistakes or that there's a lawless ty tyrant well you can just say no you know that was a that was a stupid law with unintended consequences we're not going to do that um just say no and then the third level the coercive tyrant that's um you know generally speaking probably indirect defiance uh, but then the fourth level the persecutor of god direct defiance and that you know where you are being commanded to do something and we directly say we are not doing that and too often we think so little of this idea of resistance that it's just and it's almost like a hero complex i i'll be the one to stand up when finally the day comes when the governor says i have to do this and then i will i'll be wrecked isn't that just a wonderful thought? I'll be recognized as a martyr and I, I'll go down in history as this heroic person. Um, 
a godly Christian confession doesn't always look like being the hero. It's, it's sometimes being the gadfly, you know, like, like Socrates. It's, um, it's just saying no when it looks like it's just a piddly little thing. What's the big deal? He got his, he got his details confused. Uh, what's the big deal? It's not affecting your life. Um, and, and I and, think and that's we, where, yeah. Yeah, and might we lose our children our people and so forth, when we're in positions of leadership like you and I are, might we lose them when they don't see us standing up for the little things? And then later on, when it comes to the big thing, now they now they stand up, We they see us standing up, but they go, well, I'm not going to stand up because you weren't standing up all along. And, you know, I, I say no, numerous times in the book, we need a little courage now or we need a lot of courage later on. So that we don't get to that point where the governor is demanding we do something and now we have to make a big bold stand. Better is our people see us as Christian citizens standing a little by little all the time. Mm-hmm. So we're going to uh, we'll talk about that in application uh, next week and we're going to get into the biblical examples of resistance. So, so what we're going to do there is I think Peter and I are just going to do a Bible study on each of these little examples that I brought up. And there's probably lots more that I didn't include. Like I did not include Daniel chapter one. And after I preached on it on Sunday, I thought, oh, that would have been a really good example to put in Perfect. in the book. Yeah. <laughs> and I think next time um, I'll have a little bit more about um, Romans Romans 13, because we just had it this past Sunday and, um, and it's kind of the topic of the book. And I think we should at least talk about that a little bit more um, in a modern example, when we're talking about Nazi Germany or Weimar Germany in the 1930s and how the Nazi party co-opted uh, the Christians into mindlessly saying you must obey and all the follow from that. Um, so I'll, I'll keep that one short next time. <laughs> I'll try. Um, but I think it's a very good example of the difference. And, and when we unplug our brains and don't think about the nuance, you know, move past what is it to how and why do we apply this? Right. And so we can wrap it up here. And I think I'll wrap it up. When we talk about resistance, I, I really tried bringing this point out in my sermon on Sunday on uh, confession instead of compromise on Daniel 1 is that God uses his servants of the governing authorities to hold us accountable and then to curb our sinful natures and keep us from anarchy. But this is, I think, the part we forget, and this is the part I really learned in writing the book, is that God also uses us as Christian citizens to curb the sinful natures of governing authorities to remain a good and godly society and keep the government from tyranny. And in that way, it's the middle road that God uses his government when they submit to God's will, then they're working on us to also submit to God's will. But when the governing authorities and the government, when they switch sides and submit to Satan's will and become the beast of the sea, now we can use law and gospel to curb their sinful nature and Lord willing, call them back to becoming servants. And I, so that's that that middle road that we're talking about. And sometimes the way to do that, to curb them, is resistance. So we'll talk about the biblical examples next week.